All right, good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul, lead pastor here at Four Oaks, Killarne. Hope you guys are having a great Labor Day weekend. You know, Labor Day always marks the traditional beginning of the fall season, kind of, you know what I mean. And to mark that, I thought it would be great for us to gather here tonight for a time of prayer and fasting, media, media blackout, okay, remove all distractions, really focus in on our spiritual priorities for the fall. No, not so much. You got other plans, something else going on? Of course you do, which is a great segue. I mean, it's a great segue into our text this morning. So turn, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. And let me just say, no meeting tonight, but go Knowles, right? Okay. And this is going to be a serious one because I brought my books. And anytime I bring my books, that's, that's, that's a big problem. Now, as we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew, as we were making our way in this sermon series, we're in that section where Jesus is demonstrating his authority by what he does. He's been teaching with authority in the Sermon on the Mount, but now he is acting with authority. He's doing healings and miracles, the blind walk, um, I mean the blind see, the lame walk, that'd be a miracle. Uh, the paralytics are, their limbs are made new, the demon-possessed exorcisms are happening. But as we've seen, this is no dog and pony show. This is not simply an opportunity for, for Jesus to gather a crowd. This is to establish his authority, his messiahship, to show, in fact, that Jesus is king, not just over a little political realm. Jesus is king over all. He is Lord of the physical realm, the spiritual realm, the mental realm. He's Lord of the body. He's Lord of, the, uh, of other spiritual beings. And this is Matthew's purpose in highlighting all these different amazing things. But as we've seen in doing so, Jesus has been stepping squarely on the toes of the religious leaders. Um, he has been calling out the Pharisees, the Sadducees, their, their hypocrisy, not because they were doing the right thing necessarily. They were just doing the right thing for all the wrong reasons. They had a corrupt heart. They were, they were doing things in order to be seen by men and acclaimed by men. And sometimes, don't you get the sense that Jesus, he just sort of likes to stick it to the religious leaders, right? He just kind of likes to pause and like just poke his stick into the hornet's nest a little bit. He reminds me of Daniel LaRusso. You know Daniel LaRusso, right? And the Karate Kid, of course, played by Ralph Macchio. And remember, there's the scene, they're at the school dance, the Halloween dance, and Johnny Lawrence is in the uh, in back bathroom stall, and Daniel thinks it would be fun to turn the hose on him while he's doing whatever he's doing back there, even though he knows it's going to get him beaten up, right? Karate Kid, for a guy so awesome at fighting, gets beaten up so many times in that movie. And sometimes that's the sense that you get with Jesus, that, that he intentionally presses a particular spiritual button in order to get at the heart, in order to get at deeper truths. And this is exactly what we saw last week, right? That, that Jesus invites the most unpopular, despised man in all of Capernaum, that would be Matthew, he invites him to be his disciple. And not only that, but Matthew then turns around and invites all of his friends, the spiritual riffraff of the city, to come to his party to see Jesus. 
It's the other tax collectors. It's the prostitutes from the red light district. It's the thugs. It's the thieves. And this just ticks the Pharisees off. And they ask Jesus, why are you... Why are you associating with these people? These people are contaminated. This is not what a holy man does. You're making yourself ritually impure. And in doing all that, they miss Jesus' most obvious point. This is where we were last week. And the obvious point is simply this. Anyone can be forgiven. Anyone can be forgiven. As long as they know that they need forgiveness. And so... This has set off the five alarms for these spiritual leaders. But there's a part two to this episode. There's a part two to this episode. And what we're going to find out is that not only do the religious leaders have a problem with who's at the party, but they have a problem with what's happening at the party itself. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity not just to reorient their lives around food and drink, that's going to be the subject matter, but in fact to reorient their whole perspective to all of life, to communicate that it is in fact Jesus Christ who is at the center of everything, and because of that, he changes everything about who we are. And so that's where we're going this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 9, just a few short verses, verses 14 through 17. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read God's word together. Matthew 9, 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed." But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's him that we want to see this morning. It's him that we want to encounter, to experience to hear from through your word. And so, Father, we ask that you would go before us now, fill our hearts, enlighten our minds with your Holy Spirit. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. It's a very simple passage, very straightforward. The title of this sermon is Jesus Changes Everything. Like we tell tell you in Sunday school, right? If you guess Jesus on a question, you have a 50-50 shot of getting it right. So Jesus changes everything, and here here are two points. First, Jesus has for us a teaching about fasting. Isn't everybody pumped about that as we head into Labor Day, right? It's a teaching about fasting. But as we're going to see, it's not just a teaching about fasting. It's actually a teaching about life. It's a teaching about 
all of reality. So that's where we're going to go this morning. Let's jump in right off the bat. Verse 14, a teaching about fasting. It begins with a question that John the Baptist's disciples have for Jesus, and they simply ask this, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That, that's the question for Jesus. Now, one of the things that just jumps out to us immediately, we have to ask is, what in the world are John the Baptist's disciples doing hanging out with the blasted Pharisees? Aren't these the guys that John the Baptist said, you brood of vipers? Well, let's remember the last time we heard from John the Baptist and his disciples, John baptized Jesus, and then Jesus went off immediately into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. But in the meantime, John has gotten thrown into prison. And it seems that some of John's disciples were sort of homeless, if you want to say, put it that way, homeless spiritually. And the, the place they knew to go were the Pharisees. Let's remember, we, we, we do pick on the Pharisees quite a bit, but let's remember they were the religious faithful. They were the ones everybody looked to, to say, what does faithfulness to God look like? They weren't just esteemed, but they were looked to, affirmed, given spiritual authority over the people. So it made complete sense for John the Baptist's disciples, while John's in prison, and remember Jesus had not begun his public ministry yet when, when Jesus had gone into the wilderness, for them to sort of hang out with the Pharisees. And apparently they were hanging out with the Pharisees um, at the same time that Jesus was calling his disciples. Now, the real question here is, why in the world do they ask a question right now about fasting? I mean, this is like the, the ultimate non sequitur, right? It's like you're at work as a parent, and you keep getting texts and calls from one of your kids at home. And it's like SOS, right? And it's like, I've got to talk to you right now. And so you're canceling your meetings, you're, you're excusing yourself, you call on your cell phone, which is a rarity, nobody calls on their cell phones anymore. And, and you get on there and you find out, what's, what's the SOS? What's the emergency? We can't find the remote, right? Now, don't tell me you haven't been there. Hey, we, we've all been there, right? And it seems like that kind of question. Why are you having a question about fasting of all things? Well, let's remember what comes right before this passage. Remember, the chapter and, and verse divisions weren't there when Matthew wrote them. They were put there later to help us study. But the thing that happens right before this, remember, is there is a feast at Matthew's house. There is food and wine and drinking and celebration. There's life. The lost have been found. The... the Remember, it's not the, not the righteous that need a doctor, right? It's, it's, it's the sick. And these people knew they were sick. They knew they needed Jesus. And they were there around that table celebrating their new life in Christ, their mercy and grace and forgiveness. Well, it seems that the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples, we call him JTB around here for short, right? Okay. So, so Pharisees and, and John the Baptist's disciples were watching all of this go down. And as we saw last week, the Pharisees were not impressed, were they? 
why are you eating with this riffraff, they said. Don't you know you can become spiritually defiled and ritually contaminated? It's not what a holy man does. That, that was their first issue. We saw how Jesus responded. But now they have a second issue, and it's simply this. Why are your disciples eating and drinking at all? Why aren't they fasting like we are? Now, which may seem strange, it's like, well, don't Pharisees eat and drink and be merry? I, you probably wouldn't want to invite them to your watch party tonight, but you get what I'm saying. They have to live. What, what's led them to ask this now? This is so important. Because you realize in the Old Testament, it commands God's people to fast only one time. There's only one occasion in the church calendar in the Old Testament where God's people are commanded to fast, and that's on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That's the day the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. He offers sacrifices. He wears the little bells on the fringe of his garment so that they could hear him if he was, while he was in there doing the things. And if the bell stopped, what did that mean? Right? They would drag him out with a rope. You do not want to be the high priest, right? And so, so this is the one day, though, the people were called to fast. They were seeking God in repentance. They were mourning over their sin. They were interceding for the nation, for themselves, for their families, for the priest. Now, there were other times, absolutely, in the Old Testament, where people fasted outside of that. They just weren't necessarily commanded to. They did it sometimes as families or as a nation. For example, in Daniel, it says that Daniel, while they're in captivity in Babylon, gathers all the people up and they fast and pray and seek God because they know that they have disobeyed God by being taken, which has led to them being taken into exile. But make no mistake, while there are many examples of fasting, there was only one day where God's people were commanded to fast. However, that had all changed by the time this story is taking place in the New Testament. By this time, there had been no king, there were no prophets, it was only the Pharisees, and they had established beyond Scripture their own traditions, their own rituals. And one of the things that they had instituted is that if you were really faithful, if you were really religious, if you were really righteous, if you wanted to be a scribe set aside for the work of God, you had to, fight, to fast twice weekly, two days out of the week. And typically it was the same two days. I think it was Monday, Thursday. That's, that's not the important thing. But that was what was expected of religious elites and leaders, of rabbis, their students, the scribes. And it seems, now this is, this is the important part, it gets us back to the text, that this was supposed to be a fast day. This was a day John the Baptist's disciples were fasting, the Pharisees were fasting, the Sadducees were fasting, but here is Jesus not fasting. In fact, they are partying with the riffraff. And this is what sort of sparks their question. Now, now understand something. When we think about them fasting the Pharisees twice a week, and we're going to get to this in just a, in just a moment, this was not born out of a pure heart. This was not born out of a desire to honor God as much as it was to what? Be seen by men. 
Because when a Pharisee fasted, boy, you knew a Pharisee was fasting. Walking around, gloomy, sackcloth, ashes, and that was the whole point. Look at this holy man. He is fasting. He is a serious man about God. And they looked at Jesus and said, what are you doing? Guys, Luke 18 says this. The Pharisee, and this was, a, this was a, a, a parable told by Jesus. It says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. In other words, all the people that were at Matthew's feast. I fast, now here, here's your thing, twice a week. There it is. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. They'd come upon this feast and they're like the, the kid from Polar Express who like, do you have your ticket? Do you have your ticket? Remember that guy? You just want to punch that kid, right? And Jesus says, you've missed the point entirely. And look at what he says to them in verse 15, which at first is inscrutable until you unpack this a little bit. Verse 15, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. This is why they said Jesus taught like no man, right? He, he says about 10 different things here in just a few simple words. And he's first of all reminding us something very important about the nature of fasting in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, fasts were done because there was a profound sense of yearning and desperation for the presence of God. Particularly, there was a yearning and a desperation that God would rescue them, that God would fix what was wrong, that God would heal the nation from sin, that God would restore his people to salvation, and, this is important, that this would all come to fruition by the coming of the Messiah. That this new prophet that comes after Moses, that's greater than Moses, this king that comes after David, but he's, greater, he's a greater king, this is going to be the way that God fulfills this rescue of his Old Testament people. And so because of that, there was oftentimes a profound sense of mourning when there was fasting in the Old Covenant. There was a profound sense of, of oftentimes it was done on the hills of a great tragedy or a moral failing. There, it was, it was a, it, they were fasts that were filled with lament and sorrow. And there was this sense that people were begging for reconciliation to their God. Now, one of the things you need to know is that one of the dominant, if not the dominant, motif or theme or metaphor for God and his people in the Old Testament is this idea of the groom and the bride. So Jesus says here, bridegroom, that just means the groom. And of course, God is the groom. God is the husband. The people are his bride. And what's really interesting in the Old Testament is that covenantal unfaithfulness, in other words, when Israel was unfaithful to God, that covenantal unfaithfulness was often described in very graphic, very explicit sexual terms. 
And in fact, if you're going to do a family Bible study, I, I strongly recommend that you don't start with the book of Ezekiel. Okay, let me just say that. Go with the Psalms, but if you know, you know, right? The, Ezekiel is all about God's people, the bride, being unfaithful to their husband, God. So Jesus, what is he saying here? He's saying, I am God. I, I am the bridegroom. I am the husband. I'm God incarnate. Everything that you have been fasting for under the old covenant, which is the appearance and rescue of God, you can stop that now. Why? Because I'm here. I'm here. However, he also says something else. And by the way, this is the first reference in Matthew that we have to Jesus' death. He says, one day I'm here. So, so he says, right now I'm here, so don't fast. But one day, he says, I'm going away. In other words, I'm going to follow the path of your, of your master, John the Baptist. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to leave. I'm going to be murdered for political reasons because I was too disrupted to the religious order. And when I leave, what does Jesus say? Then you can fast again. What is Jesus saying here, church? This is, this is super important. Jesus says, there is going to be a time when you fast again as the people of God. In other words, once I leave, which he does on the cross and ascends into heaven, between that time and then all the way up to the present and to whenever Jesus returns again, God says, Jesus says, you're going to fast. You're called to fast. However, your fasting will be different. We will engage in what we would, what might call, this is a big term, an eschatological fast. And here, here, here's what we mean. In the Old Testament, they were desperate. God, show up. God, rescue. We, we, have, we have a future hope that we can only see dimly that we are clinging to. But now when the people of God fast, we fast in certainty. We fast with great hope. We don't fast dimly seeing. We fast because Jesus has come. We fast because Jesus has rescued us. We fast in hope. We fast in certainty. Now granted, one day, he is going to return and he is going to put an exclamation point on this and he's going to fix all that's wrong and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. But we don't fast merely looking to what might happen in the future like the Old Testament people did. We fast looking to the past for what Jesus has done. Guys, we fast in hope. And isn't it interesting, one of the dominant um, metaphors that Jesus uses, the New Testament, in fact, the whole Bible uses to describe life is what? Wine. What was Jesus' first miracle in Cana? Water into wine. 
And Jesus is saying, one day, when I return and usher in the new heavens and the new earth, there'll be no more fasting. Please understand that. One day in the new heavens and the new earth, not only will there be no marriage, which might be good or bad news depending on who you are, right? No marriage and no fasting. Why? We don't need them anymore. Then we're going to see Jesus face to face. Because you realize when Jesus says, I'll share this meal with you to the disciples, the Lord's Supper, the next time I'm going to share this with you will be in my kingdom. That's what he's talking about. One day Jesus is going to return and we're going to be all gathered around the feast table. And I, th- and I, be- and I think literally eating real food and drinking real drink. And I'm sorry for the Baptists in here, it will be alcohol. I have no doubt about it. It'll be watered down, don't worry. Okay, it'll be okay. You'll, 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 I jest, that wasn't in the notes, but I just wanted to throw that in there, right? And so here's what Jesus is telling us, okay? Does that mean, Pastor Paul, we're not to fast right now? No, 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 no. We are absolutely to fast right now. And I want to say a few things about this okay first i think it's very clear from the sermon on the mount that jesus assumes that fasting is to be an ongoing spiritual discipline in the life of even the new covenant believer matthew 16 and when you fast did you hear that when underscore that not if not if you're led to not if it's a thought when you fast Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Guys, when we studied this passage a bit in the Sermon on the Mount, many of you had questions about this practice of fasting, and and we didn't have time to get into it. So I do want to say a few things about this today. First of all, let me start by saying this is absolutely positively a lost discipline in the life of the modern church. It's particularly difficult for Christians living in a culture that worships, and I do say that, worships food and drink. See, we have come to believe that food and drink are things to be pursued in and of themselves. You see, the gifts of God, there's nothing wrong with food, there's nothing wrong with drink. In fact, we're going to be doing plenty of it in the new kingdom. The problem is the way that we pursue it in this life. A lot of times we pursue food and drink as if they are the ultimate goal versus a means to something else, a means to nutrition, a means to celebration, a, a means to, to fellowship with one another, a means to have communal life. Meals are always, right, meant to be shared. It's why it's one of the most intimate activities that, could, that people can, or could engage in in the ancient culture, not in our culture so much. But so, so this is particularly difficult for a, for a culture that idolizes food. Now remember, the Apostle Paul says nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. And so God gives us many gifts, whether it's sex or food or drink or recreation. 
marriage, on and on and on. But as one pastor has, has famously said, if you take a good thing like food and drink and make it the ultimate thing, it becomes a terribly destructive thing. And so I just want to acknowledge right off the bat, this probably is a new category for many of us. That's the first thing. So here's the second thing I want to say. I am the chief of sinners when it comes to failure in this area. It would be hypocritical for me to stand up and say, do what I do when I very much struggle with this. Can I just be honest with you as your pastor? I stink at fasting of all varieties. Like I've done health-based fasts, you know, like cleanses and vitamins and intermittent fasting, liquid diets. I felt like I was a contestant on a Survivor or a reality show, okay? I'm comatose. Susan's like, what is wrong with you? I'm just sprawled out like on the couch. I have no energy because my body is in shock, right? It's used to 12 cups of caffeine. It's getting one and it doesn't know what to do, right? And so I've struggled with that, but I've also attempted and struggled with spiritual fasting. I've tried it on and off over the years on occasions to pray, to seek the Lord, for an event that's happening or a season in the life of the, of the church. Um, and oftentimes I have felt myself just oftentimes a failure, right? I'm hungry. I'm popping 12 ibuprofen to deal with my headaches. I'm nauseous. I just, I don't do well, which should tell me something, right? Which should tell me something. So I simply say, all that to say, I'm entering this place with you as, as, as your pastor, as someone who is weak, who's someone who is not excelling, who's not doing great, but nonetheless, who I firmly believe that this is part of the life of discipline God has called us to. So I want to say three specific things before we leave this point. Number one is a helpful resource for me hopefully for you. It's by John Piper called A Hunger for God. Now we have a graphic there. That's the new revised version. This is the one from 1998 okay, with all the scenery and the graphics, right? This is a series of sermons that John Piper preached at Bethlehem Baptist on fasting. They've been turned into chapters. I'm sure there are other great resources on fasting. This is the best biblical resource on fasting that I have, that I have read, and I highly commend this to you. That's number one. Number two, I'm going to encourage us to broaden our definition of fasting beyond food. I want you to think about just for a second, what is it in your life that you think you cannot live without? You just, like if this thing was taken away, Pastor Paul, I don't know how I would flourish. I don't, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what I would do with myself. See, in the ancient culture, there weren't many of those things except food and drink, and so God chose that. But see, there are many things that we are convinced that we could not live without, and fasting is an opportunity to say, oh, yes, you can. And not only can you, not because those things are bad, in fact, they're good, but it's to keep them from becoming idols, it's to teach you that man shall not live by bread alone. Is this not exactly what Jesus said to Satan during, the during his temptation in the wilderness? He quoted Deuteronomy 8.3. 
Here's what he says. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with mammon, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but, by every, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Whether it's social media, television, sports, alcohol, whatever that thing is for you. Jesus says it is very appropriate, not because it's bad, but because it's good, to abstain from that thing so that you learn this in Deuteronomy 8.3. So a second resource I want to commend to you is this one by Andy Crouch and his daughter Amy Crouch, My Tech Wise Life. Now, a number of years ago, we did a class on the Tech Wise family that Andy wrote for families. This is for anyone. This is, a, this is what does it mean to have a faithful rhythm of media in your life? And he takes you through all the sorts of practices they do as a family, and those may not need to be your practices, but I can assure you from almost all of us in here, we need to have a rhythm for this, and we don't. And the fact that even right now, our comfort level in thinking about distancing ourselves from the technology in our life might say something more about our hearts, right? And so, so second, I encourage you, expand your definition of fasting beyond merely food. And then third, and this is just, just bullet out really quick, just a few little things to hang your hat on. Number one, start slow and start small. Um, do not resolve to go out of here today and read this book and do a 40-day fast. We will pick you up off the pavement in about a week, right? Sometimes it's very easy to spiritualize, over-spiritualize these sorts of things. Don't do that. You might take a meal, a lunch, a breakfast. Just spend that time in prayer. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. You might go from dinner to dinner and use those times you otherwise would have committed to eating, to fasting and praying and reading God's word. Not just food, but any sort of thing that draws your heart and attention and weds it in an unhealthy way to it. And I don't ask if there is anything for you, there is for all of us. And this can be very helpful. Be realistic and don't get discouraged. Guys, I'm going to just make a promise to you, okay? A pastoral promise to you. You are going to fail in your fasting. You are. Because it's not natural. And that's the whole point. And a lot of times, though, we take failure in this area and base our judgment upon that about how well did I or did I not do. Because you realize the Pharisees were expert fasters, but their hearts were corrupt. So don't make fasting about success or failure. In fact, don't make it about you at all. Make it about Jesus, which is the whole point. Fasting is that opportunity to say, Jesus, you've given yourself to me. You've indwelled 
You're indwelling in me, in my heart, with your Holy Spirit. And now what I'm asking for is more of you. I want more power. I want more conviction of sin. I want more repentance. I want, I want more faith. Lord, I, I, I want to I walk in newness of life. And I can pray that in hope, in confidence, because of what you've done for me on the cross. So Jesus, don't miss this, wants to give us a teaching about fasting. Lastly, and this will be our, our second point, it's really about much more than fasting. It's really about all of your life. Now, to, to, to kind of emphasize this point about fasting, Jesus uses two illustrations, and these are a little obscure for us in our current culture. He uses the illustrations of a patch on a piece of cloth and then new wine into old wineskins. Let me read these two verses, and let's make a couple of comments here. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. As I grew up in the 70s, I'm still old, old enough to remember when moms sewed clothes for their kids, right? I know the Amish among you still do that, right? But I remember I would tear my jeans, and now what do you do with a pair of torn jeans? Well, not, you, not your kids, but you you, th- you. you toss them, right? It's time to get a new, no, 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 not in the 70s, not with 18% inflation. No, you got a patch, and I remember there was all kind of cool patches, right? as an eight-year-old, my mom would, would, would sew a, a big American flag on my knee, right? And that would be a, a patch, right? It would, so I wouldn't have to buy new clothes. So, so same thing in, in the ancient culture. But if you put a new patch on an old garment, the old garment's already shrunk, the new patch hasn't. The new patch shrinks, it's going gonna, it's gonna to tear even more and make an existing hole even worse. Now, the same thing with wineskins. Now, wines were, they aged in barrels like, like we have, but there were no bottles. There was no, there was no, you know, bottling operation. So they put them in the skins of animals. And we all know when leather gets wet, it shrinks. And so if you put in that culture wine, new wine, in old wine skins, what is that wine going to do? Ferment, Right? It's going to expand, and it's going to burst, and then you're going to lose all of this, right? What is Jesus' point with all this? Jesus' point, by the way, in this illustration, Jesus is not the new wineskins. That's a common misconception. Jesus isn't the new wineskins. What is Jesus? He's the wine. He's the wine. Wine is life, wine is celebration, wine is newness, wine is, is, is marked by communal life and celebration together. And Jesus says, as the new wine, in other words, the wine that was left to the very last of the feast, the best for last, I've come and guess what? Everything changes now. Everything changes. 
I am the new reality. And Jesus says, it's not just your fasting that's to change, but everything. You can't do anything the same once you've come to know Jesus. Because Jesus is not just simply a little addendum to your life. You can't simply sprinkle a little Jesus and keep everything the same. He's not an attachment to your email. He's not an addendum. He's not an appendix. Jesus makes the all-encompassing claim as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus says the old structures won't do. The old way of doing things have to be done away with. I'm here to give new life. I'm operating now in an economy, a gospel of grace. I've changed everything. And so now it's not just that we, in, in their current context, it's not that you just fast different, but now you Sabbath different. You tithe differently. You pray differently. You, you do those things with a certainty. I'm not doing these in order to receive grace from God in terms of merit or salvation. I'm doing them because I honor God and because he's already given his grace to me. And now that grace just overflows. You see, you have to think about in your own life, where is Jesus for me just simply kind of an add-on, an appendix? And where have I fully resisted the reality that he now changes everything about me. He changes my marriage. He changes my job, my friendships, my church life, my community, my priorities, my spending. It's not that we don't eat anymore or go on vacation anymore or go to work anymore. It's just as new creatures in Christ, guess what? We now do them differently. Jesus has transformed everything. Guys, Jesus has done the one thing that you and I could never do for ourselves. And we said this last week. He has forgiven your sins in him. And because of that, we now no longer belong to ourselves. See, everybody in here is going to serve somebody, going to have some sort of king in your life. But Jesus says, when I'm your king, I give you everlasting life and forgiveness of sins and a restored relationships and a clear conscience. And now just wedge yourself to me and follow me. And when we do things like fast, we're simply praying, God, give me more of what you've already given me. Because fasting is a, is a rhythm that I hope and pray becomes a part of your spiritual life. But one of the things that we do here at Four Oaks that's also one of our family rhythms is not only do we gather together, not only do we open God's word together, but we come to the table together. Because by coming to the table, we're reminded week after week, what I need most in my life is Jesus. And so I'm gonna ask you just to spend a moment or two preparing your hearts to come to the table and I'm gonna ask our leaders to come forward to prepare to serve the elements.